Before AI can help your business predict demand, accelerate growth, inform decisions, automate tasks, reveal insights, generate content, you have to trust it. Introducing WatsonX Governance. Helping you govern any AI as data, models, and policies change so you can scale it responsibly. Let's create AI that begins with trust with WatsonX Governance. Learn more at ibm.com governance. IBM. Let's create. During the summer when the weather gets hot, I can only imagine how much time you plan to spend outside with friends or alone on your couch with that AC blasting. AT&T 5G and home internet keeps you connected so you can enjoy all the summertime vibes. Whether you're sharing pics from a rooftop, video calling your friends from an outdoor concert, or streaming your favorite show episode after episode. So stay connected to your favorite people and your favorite things with AT&T 5G and home internet. AT&T 5G requires compatible plan and device. Coverage not available everywhere. Learn more at att.com slash 5G for you. This Father's Day, the Home Depot has the perfect gift to help dad be everything he can be. Because your dad is more than just a dad. He's the groundskeeper of the yard, the perfecter of the patio, and the cleaner of the clippings. This Father's Day, power dad's doing with the convenience and gas-like power of Milwaukee cordless outdoor tools from the Home Depot. Plus, get up to $150 off select Milwaukee tools. Find the perfect Father's Day gift at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Shop for Father's Day now in stores or online at homedepot.com. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. They say Mary had a standing bet that she could knock out any man with just one punch. They also say it was a bet she never lost. She stood six feet tall, weighed in at around 200 pounds. No doubt she was a formidable force known and respected on the frontier. She smoked hand-rolled cigars and drank whiskey in men's-only saloons. Now at that time, at the turn of the 20th century, a saloon in Montana was a social space where neither women nor black men were allowed or welcome. But Mary, a black woman, drank there. She sipped and spilled whiskey with the town mayor and all the men of power and influence in the town of Cascade, Montana. The mayor even passed a town ordinance that gave Mary a legal exception to continue drinking with the mayor and town fathers. Mary had a few nicknames, Black Mary, Shotgun Mary, Stagecoach Mary, but her mama first named her Mary Fields. As legend goes and photos confirm, she preferred men's coats and women's long skirts, and a good workaday hat, typically a men's one. Around the waist of her long hem skirt, she often wore a gun belt. In the holster, she carried a six-shooter. But the 10-gauge shotgun was reportedly her preferred method of armed persuasion. They say she once got in a shootout with a pack of wolves. In the snow and dark of night where the wolves have the advantage, Mary must outlast the circling pack. She must be more eager to survive than they are. She lets her shotgun sing its smoky song a few times before the night is through. Mary sees with dawn's coming light that she's won her showdown with the wolf pack. She's survived yet another long night in the wilderness. Okay, one thing about that story with the wolf pack. We don't know if that happened. 
We know very little for certain about long stretches of Mary Field's life. Instead, we're left with legends, mostly because she left no diary. She left us no record of her voice, her account of events. The public record is slim. She was rarely in the news. But when she was, the stories were typically tall tales of the West at its best. But more typically, later newspaper accounts turned out racist and sexist caricatures of a woman who thrived in a hard world and mixed up gender politics of the frontier. Mary Field was a black woman in the West, doubly troubled by issues of racism and sexism. Thus, her story is more obscured by time, harder to find confirmation and corroboration. We will attempt to tell her story with respect to both her legend as well as her truth. She was a woman on her own in the world who did most of her hard living after the age of 40. She lived with nuns in the daytime, drank whiskey with men in saloons at night. She delivered mail for the postal service, sometimes shouldering the mailbag as she trudged through drifts of waist-deep snow in order to ensure delivery. The mail must get through. Tough as she was, she was also known for the verdant lushness of her well-tended gardens. Mary was a woman of dualities, and yet also limitless complexities. Over time, her legend has outshined the facts of her life. We will attempt to untangle her truth from her legend and myth. This is the life and legend of Mary Fields, the toughest woman to ever call the West her home. Yeah, this a home, it's been a long road for us. We taking ownership over everything owed to us. Royalty, we surrounded by our heritage. Our fist up, cause we proud to be American. I'm Zaren Burnett, welcome to Black Cowboys, an iHeart original podcast. What's really in the name? Sitting on a Mustang, riding through the plains. Buffalo soldier, the king of the range. We in love with the cowboy way. Chapter 6 Mary Fields, aka Stagecoach Mary. Mary didn't know what day she was born. She'd been born in slavery sometime, most likely in 1830 or 1832. It said sometimes Mary celebrated her birthday twice in the same year. This worked out fine since Mary's birthday was whatever day she said it was. And whenever she said it was, the whole town would come out to celebrate. This was toward the end of her life when she'd become a living legend of the dying Wild West. According to an April 3, 1913 edition of the Great Falls Tribune, Mary Field has become to cascade what the Cradle of Liberty has to Philadelphia, or Faneuil Hall has to Boston. She's sort of a landmark. Of course, in her case, the use of the word landmark has to be figurative, but Mary Fields is truly a historic character about the business center of Chestnut Valley. Those who came to the valley early recall that Mary was there when they arrived. Those who came later became acquainted with Mary, and the latest generation has known her since birth. In fact, everybody knows Mary Fields. The town of Cascade was founded in 1887, shortly after Mary arrived at the nearby convent. Cascade quickly grew to be a town of 8,775 people, just in time for the 1890 census. By 1900, the town's population had swelled to 25,700, and Mary happily made herself known to all the newcomers who called Cascade home. One of her neighbors remembered her quite fondly. He was young then. He grew up hearing stories about her. She was locally famous. Then that boy grew up and became one of the most famous men of the 20th century. Gary Cooper was raised in Montana. He grew up in Helena. He spent his youth on his family's ranch not far from Cascade. Mary Fields apparently made quite an impression on him. The all-American leading man wrote a truly loving tribute in Ebony Magazine to the woman he knew as Black Mary. 
They say Black Mary could whip any two men in the territory. She wore a 38 Smith & Wesson strapped under her apron, and they swear she couldn't miss a thing within 50 paces. She was tall, weighing well over 200 pounds, and except for an apron and skirt, wore men's clothes. Black Mary is what they called her, but her real name was Mary Fields, one of the most picturesque characters in the history of Montana. In bold brushstrokes, the Hollywood actor paints the most detailed portrait we have of her. She was a stagecoach driver, the second female to ever drive a U.S. mail road. Maybe because she was a Negro, she was never bothered by Indians. I remember seeing her in Cascade when I was just a little shaver of nine or so. Gary Cooper also tells the best story, one that historians would find familiar. Only he tells it with the benefit of a closeness of proximity of both time and space. So we'll have Gary Cooper guide us through this story. Of course, we'll correct him whenever he's wrong. Pop, you remember that Gary Cooper article from Ebony, right? Now, you read that as a boy. What do you remember about reading that? Uh, I was nine years old. We had just moved to Lancaster, Pennsylvania. And, but you know, we subscribed to Ebony, so you don't miss anything. And that was one of the issues. I saw Gary Cooper. I said, what is Gary Cooper doing in Ebony? <laughs> I thought they were going to reveal that he was part black. <laughs> so <laughs> but Ebony was good for that. <laughs> but then that made me read it. So that's that's when I discovered Stagecoach Mary. And what do you remember as a boy? You know, here you are, and you learn about this character. She reminded me of the women in my family. Women in my family could drive wagons. You know, they, they would drive to the field. While the people kept working, they would drive the crops back to the shed. It wasn't unusual to see the women dressed in the same garb that we see Stagecoach Mary wearing and doing the same work. So for me, it was familiar. It wasn't any unusual at all. Not even the guns. My Aunt Eula carried pistols in her uh, apron. And uh, as her vision deteriorated, she got more pistols. <laughs> By the time she died, she couldn't hardly move. <laughs> I'll hit you eventually. <laughs> Just keep talking. <laughs> so Gary Cooper is kind of known as like a paragon of that laconic western white ideal of the cowboy but here he was singing praises of mary fields and he understood that she was just as western as him did that come through to you as a boy yeah yeah that actually made me like gary cooper because up to that time i didn't care much about him i liked him in uh high noon but in the other movies he was always kind of bland to me i i I like randolph scott (laughs) herb jeffries you know (laughs) but then uh after i read that I had to change my view. Because <laughs> he, he was bragging about her. She could shoot out shoot anybody, and she could drink, drink more alcohol. Only thing she could do more, more than drink it was hold it. 1832 is a busy year for America. On July 24th or thereabouts, Benjamin Bonneville crosses the Rocky Mountains, leading a wagon train west. It's the first wagon train to make it over the mountain range that divides the continent. That same year, noted racist and American expansionist Andrew Jackson wins re-election. Around that same time, Charles Carroll, the last living man who signed the Declaration of Independence, drops dead. A month later, a secret society is formed at Yale University. It calls itself Skull and Bones. 1832 is an important year in the history of the fight for equality in America, too. It was the first time a man had publicly advocated for the rights of women in America. 
At that time, only men were supposed to speak publicly in a forum like a public lecture. So if anyone was going to advocate for the rights of women in America at that time, it would have to be a man. It could be said that the same year Mary Fields was likely born, so was the concept of feminism, at least in American public discourse. The idea obviously predates a man mentioning it in a public lecture in Maine. The man's name is John Neal. It's Independence Day. After a planned speaker dips out, John Neal is asked to give a speech. Neal has no speech prepared. So when Neal strides to the pulpit of the Second Parish Church of Portland, Maine, he gathers up his words from inside his heart and speaks to the hearts of his listeners. He makes a reasonable case that their minds find impossible to argue away. John Neal speaks to the themes of the holiday, independence, liberty, equality, democracy. Neal gives his extemporaneous speech, and it ultimately speaks far past America's celebration of independence, and instead it serves as iron-strong advocacy for the rights of American women. Neal borrows a familiar line of reasoning to make his case. American women are being taxed but cannot vote. In other words, it's a clear case of taxation without representation. The same slogan the New Englanders' revered ancestors once shouted to rally themselves to a fight for the independence of the nation a generation earlier. Was that not meant for the women of the same nation? Are their taxes any different? But then, Neil makes another powerful appeal of oratory when he compares women of America to slaves. The Portland Evening Advertiser reports on Neil's plea for the rights of women to be equal to men. This subject was discussed in a very amusing and original manner, but we suspect the fair are well satisfied with their present influence. Notwithstanding Mr. Neal's objections that men make all the laws for the other sex and give them no voice in legislation. She also split gender politics. She wore men's clothing. She wore women's clothing. She carried a gun. She smoked hand-rolled cigars. She drank whiskey with men in bars. Do you think that that allowed her to escape the gender dynamics and the expectations both for a woman and for a black person in that time so that she became an outlier who was free of society and civilization's expectations? I don't think it allowed her to escape it, but I don't think she gave a damn about it. So that allowed her to escape it. The fact that she went about her business anyway. And if you if you agree with her, that was fine. If you didn't, that was fine too. Just don't don't come around me with that, you know. So I, 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 I really, I believe her biggest accomplishment is the thing that is least understood: is that she lived as a free person. Well, we may celebrate this first man to announce publicly on American soil that women were human beings too. We must take a second to step back and check how he makes his case. Neil compares women in America to slaves. Slaves always with the slavery. So then, what of Mary Fields? Is she doubly enslaved? As a black woman, according to America's leading feminist at the time, Mary would have been both a literal slave and a theoretical slave. This is the world Mary Fields is born into, which makes her resistance and her demand to be herself all the more remarkable. In the 1840s and 1850s, Mary Fields is the property of the Warner family of West Virginia. The Warners later migrate to Ohio, taking Mary with them. Although slavery is outlawed in Ohio, Mary remains with the Warner household as a domestic servant. They all settle in Cleveland. This is where Mary Field spends her 20s. In 1863, Abraham Lincoln issues his Emancipation Proclamation, thereby freeing all people in the Confederacy from bondage. Mary Fields may have been freed by the Warner family soon after their arrival in Ohio, before the President's Proclamation. 
Or perhaps, even though Ohio was a free state, Mary isn't truly freed by the Warner family until the conclusion of the Civil War. We don't know. We do know that Mary spent some time as a chambermaid on a Mississippi riverboat soon after, a free woman gainfully employed. Yet she eventually returns to live with the Warners in Ohio. But she doesn't stay long. One of the Warner children, Mary Warner, is about to start a new life when Mary Fields returns. She plans to become a nun and enter a convent. Maybe because of the sin and debauchery she witnessed during her time working on the riverboats of the Mississippi. Or maybe it's to pursue a higher calling. Or perhaps for the longing of a sisterhood. For whatever reasons of her own, Mary Fields decides to go with her. Mary Fields is a middle-aged black woman who is single when she is freed. What do you imagine life was like for a single black woman who's middle-aged in the middle of the 1800s? How does she make her way in the world? There's a double question there. How, how does a single woman make her way in the world? And then what additional obstacles are there for single black women? They've had been slaves, so now they're free. So exactly what does that mean? And then how does, how does that relate to the other women who were already free? Are they, are they now equal? Or are, are, are these women somehow have a higher status? Mary feels to her great credit, walked through the world as if those questions had no import to her. She was, she was walking through the world, living her life as a free person. And I think that's the real value of her life is that that's what she did. Everything, what people were talking about doing, what people were theorizing about doing, she was doing. So naturally, everybody talked bad about her. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) But she was doing it. And it's interesting how the public perception of her is is split. There are some people who think the legend is is like 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 liberty violence, but the legend is bigger than the story. Truth, so pick the legend. And then the others who think the truth is bigger than the legend, like Gary Cooper. Gary Cooper, who was from Montana, so he was raised on the stories, but you could also be raised on legends. But I tend to believe stories over legends, and uh, I think Mary feels what they admired about her is that she was a free woman, you know, and it wasn't like she was in a free black community. She was just a big free woman. An October morning in a quiet suburb in a town in Scotland, a man is walking his dog when suddenly shots are fired from a car. The man falls to the ground and the car speeds off. An ordinary residential area, but extraordinary things happen in ordinary places. The instinct right away was it was a political thing. We're talking about Russian-trained, high-ranking officer in the Secret Service. An Assassin Comes to Town, a six-part podcast. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, iHeart listener. We have a confession to make. Both iHeart and this commercial you're listening to right now would probably sound a heck of a lot better on the new Roku Pro Series TV. It's got side-firing speakers that fill your room with sound, Dolby Atmos audio that puts you right in the middle of the entertainment, and the ability to pair seamlessly with your home theater sound systems that already have surround sound and booming bass. If all that sounds too good to be true, it'll sound even better on the new Roku Pro Series. Your hearing isn't better. Your TV is. What if AI could help your business deliver mission-critical outcomes with speed? 
With IBM Consulting, your business can design, build, and scale trusted AI using Watson X and modernize the way you work to accelerate real impact. Let's create AI that transforms your business. Learn more at ibm.com slash consulting. IBM. Let's create. There are moments in life that are so special that you have to capture them and save them forever. They are one of those once-in-a-lifetime events, like your baby's first steps, the first time you bring your family pet home, or your daughter's first dance performance. With iPhone 15 Pro, more storage means you don't have to delete anything that can become a lasting memory one day. And it's important to be able to share these moments with family members who weren't there to see them in person. Store more, share more. Connect with iPhone 15 Pro on AT&T. Get iPhone 15 Pro on AT&T and get an iPad and Apple Watch for 99 cents per month each. AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Limited time offer. Requires 0% APR 36-month agreement on each. Well-qualified customers. Other terms and restrictions apply. See att.com slash iPhone for details. The Ursuline Sisters is a cloistered order of nuns, also known as the Company of St. Ursula. The sisters were some of the earliest Catholic nuns to establish an order in the New World. The first were Spanish. Next came the French. In 1639, a small group of nuns and Jesuit priests set sail from France, headed to Canada. That same summer, they arrived in the New World. They quickly established an Ursuline convent in what would come to be called Quebec City. There, they began to teach Native children. The arrival of missionaries in the New World is a fraught history. Often, the religious orders would force the indigenous communities to forsake their tribal customs, leave behind their native ways, and instead adopt the lives of, quote, good Christian men and women. Two centuries later, for Mary Fields, employed as the groundskeeper, the convent means security, stability, and peace of mind. She also feels like she can be herself, which means she's known among the nuns to be, quote, irascible and, quote, difficult at times. She's also known to have a temper. Yet despite her prickliness, Mary Fields and the nuns live amiably and comfortably in the convent for the next 14 years. It's also where she meets one of her dearest friends, a lifelong ally who looks after Mary the way that Mary looks after others. Her name is Mother Amadeus Dunn. On July 2, 1846, in the town of Akron, she'd been born Sarah Teresa Dunn. Her parents were both Irish immigrants. She was their fifth child. When she was 10 years old, her family moved to California to chase after what was left of the gold rush. But they left Sarah behind in Toledo at the Ursuline Convent. Five years later, she entered the convent as a novitiate. And then, at the age of 18, she took her vows and became a nun. At the age of 28, she becomes Mother Amadeus. Meanwhile, Mary Fields is 40 years old. Mary Fields is certainly not as popular with all the other nuns at the convent. During her 14 years living with them, there are more than a few complaints about her demeanor. One sister, a nun named Mary Grace Connolly, later recalls stories told to her by older nuns of the convent who knew Mary Fields and warned that, quote, God help anyone who walked on the lawn after Mary had cut it. For her labors, Mary earns $50 a month in room and board. She has her own room, surrounded by women who would neither harass nor exploit her. She can read and write and is a devout believer, and her labors afford her her own form of freedom. She can come and go as she pleases. It's a modest life, but it's a vast improvement over her life as a slave. Her life is now hers. Sadly, her simple life will once again be uprooted by fates outside her control. 
1884, Mother Amadeus leaves the Ursuline convent in Toledo and heads west to Montana to start missionary schools. She founds a school and convent in Miles City, Montana, then another in Ashland, Montana. In October of 1884, Mother Amadeus creates a school for girls at the St. Peter's Mission outside of Cascade. In any event, it was because of Mother Amadeus that Mary went to Montana. The nuns went to open a school for Indian girls in 1884 at St. Peter's Mission, where the Jesuit priests had worked among the Blackfeet since 1866. Because of the hard living and intense cold, I've seen it get 45 below zero myself, Mother Amadeus took pneumonia and lay dying in a crude log cabin. Mary Fields heard the story back in Ohio and lost no time in getting to her bedside of her friend. She nursed the nun back to health and remained in Montana to help the missionaries with the hard labor. This story is oft repeated. The idea is that Mary Fields, back in Toledo, heard that her dear friend Mother Amadeus was dying in the Montana wilderness. So she bought a traveling bag and made plans to head west with a group of nuns and a Jesuit priest who were headed to Montana to join the mission. And we do have corroboration. In 1885, a nun at St. Peter's Mission in Montana wrote, Mother Amadeus got pneumonia very bad. A Jesuit sent a dispatch to Toledo. In a short time, we had help. Reverend Mother Stanislaus of Toledo and Mother Mary of the Angels Carol and Black Mary Fields from Toledo and Mother St. Thomas of Cleveland. But the story of her acting as the nurse may not exactly be true. There is some doubt. According to the historian D. Garceau Hagen, quote, From March through December of 1885, the nuns reported on Amadeus's long convalescence in letters to the Toledo convent. In all of this correspondence, not one letter identified Mary Fields as Mother Amadeus's nurse. In short, Fields' mythic role as a devoted nurse to the Mother Superior is not borne out by the evidence. End quote. Nonetheless, at age 54, Mary arrives in the West for good. For her room and board, she does housework for the nuns, and, as mentioned, is the primary source of food for the convent. Mary Fields accepts no wages for her work. Instead, she enjoys the freedom to come and go as she pleases. In Montana, she finally finds a full sense of freedom, even from the slavery of wages. Now, Pop, you're a converted Catholic, much like Mary Fields, as a Catholic in America, is there any tradition to social justice that you found uh, particularly Catholic as opposed to other Christian traditions? As a matter of fact, yes. Uh, and, but that's before I became a Catholic. When we lived in Meadville, Pennsylvania, we rented a house that was owned by the Catholic Church. It had been a nunnery. Off the garage, there was a like a, a root cellar where you had the canned goods. And then in the corner, there was like a, a, a wooden board it was just standing up. So, uh, and my dog shot behind it and disappeared. So I, I moved it and shined a flashlight in there, and you could see that it was a room. So I crawled inside and stood up. It was a big room, but a clean, clay swept floor, and there was an air shaft that ran out the side. You could feel the presence of people. I mean, you could actually feel it. So I, so I told my mother about it. She said, well, go ask Father Assisi at the church. So I went over and asked him, and he said, well, you've discovered our secret. We were active in the Underground Railroad. That house was safe because men were not allowed to go into a nunnery. So we had the runaways there because the slave chasers and the men could not go in there to look for them. So, they, so everybody who got there got, a, got away safely to Canada. So that's, that's when I 
you got respect for the Catholic Church. I've, you've never told me that story. I love that. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, it was great, though. You could feel history. I mean, you could actually feel it. And mm-hmm. the people, you could, you could feel their breath, the people who had been in there. I mean, the sweat. It was a wonderful, wonderful experience. And they all got away. Mary Fields throws herself into the cultivating life. She keeps chickens. She hunts regularly. She gardens, both food and abundant flowers. Her garden rivals Eden for its variety. The sisters and Mary Field fall into a rhythm of life in the wide-open, big-sky wilderness of Montana. Together, the women labor to build something permanent. After eight years, the Ursuline sisters' stone convent was completed, and Mary and the sisters moved from the log cabins, which had been their home, as the convent and girls' school grows more and more successful and solvent, Mary Fields becomes an integral member, despite her prickly personality. It helps that Mother Amadeus has her back. The Mother Superior doesn't let anyone mistreat her friend. Her loyalty is repaid in kind by Mary. She labors possibly hardest of them all to make the convent a success, to ensure the children are fed and educated, and that the nuns never suffer from the privations of a fickle wilderness where one bad season can mean starvation. Outside the convent, life in Montana in the late 1880s is tough. To ensure the convent is well supplied, Mary drives the mule team wagon into town and back again, typically alone, except for her trusty shotgun. Mary often spent the prairie nights fighting her way through storms and braving great dangers. One night, a pack of wolves frightened her team. The horses upset the load, and she stayed guard all night over the precious cargo the nuns needed just to exist. A blizzard overtook her on one trip. The road was lost from sight. Mary walked back and forth all through the night to keep from freezing to death. Despite the dangers outside the convent, it was Mary's temper that ultimately upended her welcome. Mary might have lived all her days working at the mission had it not been for her terrible temper and her lack of fear of man or beast. She was forever fighting with the hired men and on one occasion fought a gun duel with one. No one remembers how it turns out, but Mary was still around when it was over. Historian D. Garceau-Hagen agrees with Gary Cooper. She writes, quote, Mary Fields probably would have lived and worked at St. Peter's until she died, had it not been for Bishop Brondel in Great Falls. When the bishop heard rumors of Fields' uncouth behavior, he wanted her off the premises. Fields drank alcohol and sometimes cursed transgressions of acceptable female behavior on church grounds, end quote. The bishop finally has a good reason to demand Mary Fields be removed from the convent when Mary Fields gets into the aforementioned gunfight. On September 9, 1892, a white man, a hired hand named John Mosney, gets into a tussle with the ever-prickly caretaker. According to the contemporaneous accounts, quote, John Mosney and Mary Fields touched rifles at each other, but there was no fire. A standoff at a convent? Well, that's how Mary rolled. Guns fired or not, either way, Bishop Brondel is pissed, and he wants Mary gone from the convent. The bishop was bombarded with complaints about her and wrote to the sisters ordering them to send the black woman away. It was a heartbreaking thing for all the work Mary had done in the 10 years she spent in the nun service. She hadn't received a dime. The nuns all felt Mary had a lifetime home with them, but the bishop's orders had to be obeyed. One of the nuns notes how the bishop's order to evict Mary Fields from the convent troubles the heart of her friend. It is hard for mother to dismiss this faithful servant in her old age, but the bishop's orders are peremptory. The darkness of obedience will be light in the next world. 
another nun frames the dire, albeit helpless situation, noting that she had been overbearing and troublesome, but it was our intention to keep her till death. Mary Fields is 62 years old. She's also now an unemployed black woman in Montana in 1892. An October morning in a quiet suburb in a town in Scotland. A man is walking his dog when suddenly shots are fired from a car. The man falls to the ground and the car speeds off. An ordinary residential area, but extraordinary things happen in ordinary places. The instinct right away was it was a political thing. We're talking about Russian trained, high-ranking officer in the Secret Service. An assassin comes to town, a six-part podcast. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, iHeart listener. We have a confession to make. Both iHeart and this commercial you're listening to right now would probably sound a heck of a lot better on the new Roku Pro Series TV. It's got side-firing speakers that fill your room with sound, Dolby Atmos audio that puts you right in the middle of the entertainment, and the ability to pair seamlessly with your home theater sound systems that already have surround sound and booming bass. If all that sounds too good to be true, it'll sound even better on the new Roku Pro Series. Your hearing isn't better. Your TV is. What if AI could help your business deliver mission-critical outcomes with speed? With IBM Consulting, your business can design, build, and scale trusted AI using Watson X and modernize the way you work to accelerate real impact. Let's create AI that transforms your business. Learn more at ibm.com slash consulting. IBM. Let's create. There are moments in life that are so special that you have to capture them and save them forever. They are one of those once-in-a-lifetime events, like your baby's first steps, the first time you bring your family pet home, or your daughter's first dance performance. With iPhone 15 Pro, more storage means you don't have to delete anything that can become a lasting memory one day. And it's important to be able to share these moments with family members who weren't there to see them in person. Store more, share more. Connect with iPhone 15 Pro on AT&T. Get iPhone 15 Pro on AT&T and get an iPad and Apple Watch for 99 cents per month each. AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Limited time offer. Requires 0% APR 36-month agreement on each. Well-qualified customers. Other terms and restrictions apply. See att.com slash iPhone for details. After that Gary Cooper article came out, was she somebody that had a resurgence in black thought and in in the culture? Was that she somebody that people talked about? Did kids talk about this Mary Fields after that Ebony article came out? Not that I recall. Mm-hmm. There was some discussion on some uh, black colleges, some of the history departments, sociology departments, but they weren't sure how they felt about it. This is 1959, 1960. Mm-hmm. We're going into the uh, new presidential administration, the optimism of the 60s. The civil rights movement is having a really hard time. So there was less intellectual curiosity. It was more of the act of combat. Do you think that it was a missed opportunity that she would have been a good civil rights figure? Oh, I thought she, I think she would be a great historical figure and, uh, and therefore you, very useful as a civil rights figure. Because the, the great thing about her is that everything she did, she did by herself as a free person. So she was a perfect example of what black folks should do if you leave them the hell alone. 
<laughs> they don't they don't go and destroy shit. They go and live a life. You know, they just go off and live a life. You know, so all of the 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 conspiracies that were spun by the by the clan and all those about what we would do if we were set free, she contradicted every single day. So I think her story would be great as a historical checkpoint. Gary Cooper would certainly agree. After Mary left the convent, she went and lived that life in nearby Cascade, a relatively new town of just a few thousand people. Mother Amadeus set her up in the restaurant business in Cascade for all her toughness. Mary was too good-hearted and carried too much credit on her books. She would feed sheep herders during the winter and they would promise to pay when they worked in the summer. Mary went broke twice and Mother Amadeus gave her another start each time. In Cascade, Mary Fields is the only black resident. She fast becomes the subject of local talk. She's criticized for wearing men's clothes. She's gossiped about for owning a gun. And she's ostracized for drinking whiskey, especially in a saloon with the men of town. But Mary's such good company, the men of Cascade make a special exception for her. They say Mary had a fondness for hard liquor that was matched only by her capacity to put it away. And it's a historical fact that one of Cascade's earliest mayors, D.W. Monroe, gave special permission to let Mary drink in the saloons with men. A privilege, if you want to call it. To modern listeners, this may sound rather fun and quaint, but it's far more than that. It flies in the face of both rampant sexism and unremitting racism. Mary Fields demands respect, and she gets it. This is not normally the case for women in the West or black men. It's unheard of for a black woman. And it occurs against a backdrop of unimaginable racial violence. According to the Leavenworth Standard, in 1893, Much displeasure was caused by a wedding at Glendive, Montana, because the residents did not approve of the match. Miss Emma Wall, the brider, a colored girl, and the groom is a white man named John Orr. The people tarred the groom and whitewashed the bride, rode them on rails, and forced them to leave town. Thus, it's important that Mary Fields has the backing and the blessing of the town fathers of Cascade. It not only allows her to drink in the saloon, it likely protects her from racist harassment and possible violence. But she also still needs steady employment. It's her old friend, Mother Amadeus, who once again steps in to aid Mary Fields with life as a single woman on the frontier. Mother Amadeus went to the government, doubtless the bishop never knew about it, and asked that Mary be given the mail route. They gave Mary the route between Cascade and the mission itself, and each day, never missing a one, she made her triumphant entry into the mission, seated on top of the mail coach, dressed in a man's hat and coat, and smoking a huge cigar. Thanks to the help of Mother Amadeus, Fields is awarded a four-year, quote, star route contract from the U.S. Postal Service. She is the second woman in the United States and the first black woman to drive a wagon for the Postal Service. Around five years later, she renews her contract to continue working for the post office as a wagon driver. This is when she earns her nickname, Stagecoach Mary. And she earns it for good reason. Mary could drive. She could use a four-horse lash with a dexterity that made a man green with envy. She could also use the six-shooter with equal accuracy. There was a time when Mary's friends claimed if a fly lighted on the ear of one of the leaders of her four, she could use her choice of either shooting it off or picking it off with her whip end, and that if she was a mind to, she could break the fly's hind leg with her whiplash, then shoot its eye out with a revolver. This accuracy with whip and shooting iron, however, is not a matter of Mary's boast. She was always modest about her claims as to either line. But it is a well-known fact that she had an ability in both. 
From 1896 to 1903, Mary Fields is pure hell on a wagon trail. She drives her mule team like a chariot from ancient times, and she's late for the war. For seven or so years, she is a free woman, one riding high on the seat of her wagon, tearing through the wilderness of America, well at home beneath the ceiling of that big blue sky that stretches over Montana. One century is about to give way to a new one. The 20th century dawns with a limitless sense of promise and newness. It will later be called the American century. At the beginning of the American century, Mary Fields is one of America's freest citizens. But she's not necessarily safe, as unchecked racism continues to spread across the West with the coming of the Easterners and their ideas of civilization. In 1904, down in Humphrey, Arkansas, a post office is blown up. The reason is simple. The post office dared to hire its second black postmaster to run the station. Noted black educator Booker T. Washington is said to have remarked in 1906, in many parts of the South, the white people would object seriously to colored people handing them a letter through the post office window, but would make no objection to a colored mail carrier handing them a letter at their door. Mary Field's life serves as testimony that his statement also held true in the West. And, as life insists, things can't remain the same for too long. Her friend and protector, Mother Amadeus, is sent away to Alaska, to start a new mission up in that even more remote wilderness. Mary Fields must stay behind in Montana. In 1903, Mary made her home in Cascade. Her stagecoach days were over and her lifelong friend, Mother Amadeus, had been sent to Alaska to start new missions. Mary began taking in Washington and soon turned her home into a laundry. And, and though she was about 70, then one day she was having a drink in the saloon when a man passed whom she said owed her two dollars for laundry following him up the street she grabbed him by the shirt collar knocked him down with a fist then returned to the saloon and announced his laundry bill is paid a local newspaper reports on mary's later years writing that she does laundry work as a means of gaining a part of her living and does that as she drove a coach and four very well in the summertime mary shows that aesthetic nature still lives for she cultivates a bed of flowers, and her favorite flower is the pansy. No one is prettier pansies than Mary Fields, and no one is happier in having the flowers than she. Her neighbors get much pleasure from Mary's flowers, and not a few of them have been delighted to be presented with a pretty bouquet with Mary's good wishes to boot. Stagecoach Mary, the toughest woman in the West, who also loves pansies. Her truth is far more complex than we can ever know, or her neighbors understood. There's some peculiarities in some of the coverage. Sometimes people will make you an exception in order for them to be able to like you. So then you, so you're not just a regular black person, you're a stagecoach married, the baddest person anybody ever saw. So I can be a friend with you, but that doesn't require me to be friend with any other black people. <laughs> I'm always su suspicious of that in a situation like this. Now, not everybody but you can hear it in some of their descriptions. Or, or they're trying to make it an exception, even though in the context of her life, it's not exceptional. That's just the life that she lived. If you declare that you don't like black people, and then Stagecoach Mary comes along and you like her, you got to make her different, as opposed to changing your position. This gets back to the issue of perspective and perception when it comes to Mary's life story. Yeah, and it depends on who tells it. See, that, that's why it's important to have the, this conversation, 
because then for all the misrepresentations, this would be a counterbalance. When she's an older woman, barely a physical challenge to anyone anymore, Mary Fields becomes an unofficial mascot for the local baseball team. For every game, she would fix a buttonhole bouquet for the members of each team and five large bouquets for each of those who made home runs. The flowers were from her own gardens, yet she would punch any man in the mouth who talked against her team. Mary Field's position in the town of Cascade was complex, to say the least. In 1912, her two-room cabin burns down. The town of Cascade comes out to rebuild it. When she can no longer drive her wagon and work as the mail carrier for the town, the new Cascade Hotel offers Mary free hot meals. And finally, in 1914, when Mary is next to death, the mayor of Cascade, the same one who gave her special dispensation to drink in the saloon with the men of town, Mayor D.W. Monroe, he moves Mary into a hospital at Great Falls. She's attended to in her final days. As the historian D. Garceau Hagen notes, quote, The implication of these narratives is that race was never an issue, that the people of Cascade transcended their color prejudice and welcomed Mary Fields into their midst. In this way, Cascade residents created a collective memory about their town as a sheltering place. But the myth of the community embrace is too simple for the evidence suggests a profoundly ambivalent relationship between Fields and her white contemporaries in Cascade. That's the historian's opinion. But it's more complex than that, and perhaps also simpler, too. Gary Cooper was there. He may have been a boy, just nine years old, but he was there. He knew Mary Fields, and his recollections of her and the town is slightly different. Mary was one of the melting pot pioneers, black, white, and yellow, who came from Tennessee and places beyond the seas to help conquer and tame the old Wild West. When she died, the town mourned her passing, and they buried her at the foot of the mountains by the winding road that leads to the old mission. There's an interesting aspect of this that uh, Mary Fields has both a racial legend as a black woman in the West, but then also, as you and I would talk about it, an American legend as a free person. Is it possible to have those conversations at the same time, or do you kind of have to treat her as two, not two different people, but to see her through two different lenses? Because of that duality, you absolutely are both. You can be the American legend, which is the totality of your existence, and for your own people. Like Frank Sinatra was the absolute artistic hero of Italian people. And he was an absolute artistic hero of America. And they both had a, a different claim. And they both had a legitimate claim. And neither one contradicted the other. And it's the same way with Mary. The things that made Black people proud of her were things that made Black people proud in the face of oppression. The things that made Americans proud of her were the things that make you, that you do in the face of threats to your freedom. You know, that you have to live a free, principled life and do it without regard to consequences for you, that your principles do not change. And that's, a, and she was that way as an American and as a black person, she took no shit from white people. So, <laughs> no, <she's not. laughs> so we could all love her. When she's buried, a priest from St. Peter's Mission performs the funeral service. The owner of the New Cascade Hotel is one of her pallbearers. Flowers, which were something Mary Fields was known for growing and for giving as gifts to those she liked or wanted to celebrate, 
are in abundance at her funeral. Her final earthly moment is lavished with blossoms and bright colors. In death, the town pays their respects to the woman they've known as Stagecoach Mary. The West was a place of freedom, a beacon that called to those who longed to be free of forced servitude and the whip, free from the civilization that once called them a slave. Mary Fields went to Montana for reasons of her own, whether to help an old friend back to health or because she wished to go west and find a new life for herself. She did it her way. There, in a town where she was the only black woman, she managed to carve out a life for herself, where she was free to be herself, how she wanted to be. She drank with men in saloons. She got in fistfights when she felt it was called for. She cared for others lovingly, and they cared for her in return. And when she was gone, she left a large hole in the heart of her community. But she also left behind a legend, as big as the Montana sky. Mary Fields was a survivor, a self-directed woman, a true legend of the West. Thanks for listening. Black Cowboys is written by me, Zaren Burnett. Produced and edited by Ryan Murdoch and Michelle Lands. Our theme song is written and performed by Demeter. Sound design and music by Jeremy Thaw. Additional music by Alvin Youngblood-Hart, Greg Chudzik, and Nathan Kosey. Research and fact-checking by Austin Thompson, Marissa Brown, Jocelyn Sears, and Aaron Blakemore. Performances by Jay Charlesworth, Elizabeth Dutton, and Ryan Murdoch. Show logo by Lucy Quintanilla. Executive producers are Jason English and Mangesh Hatikater. Special thanks, as always, to my pop. Yeah, this a home, it's been a long road for us. We taking ownership over everything owed to us. Royalty, we surrounded by our heritage. Our fist up, cause we proud to be American. What's really in the name? Sitting on a Mustang, riding through the plains. Buffalo soldier, the king of the range. We in love with the cowboy way. Have you ever wondered what it would be like to have supervision, enhanced hearing, extraordinary reflexes, to be, dare we say, superhuman? Well, Roku's new Pro Series TV can't do any of that for you. But with a 4K screen, side-firing speakers, and a blazing fast refresh rate, it'll sure feel like it. Elevate your entertainment using all your favorite apps like iHeart and play all your music, radio, and podcasts with the new Roku Pro Series. Your senses aren't better. Your TV is. An October morning in a quiet suburb in a town in Scotland. A man is walking his dog when suddenly... Shots are fired from a car. The man falls to the ground and the car speeds off. An ordinary residential area, but extraordinary things happen in ordinary places. The instinct right away was it was a political thing. We're talking about Russian-trained, high-ranking officer in the Secret Service. An Assassin Comes to Town, a six-part podcast. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. When we come together, it's magic. And for 30 years, we've celebrated that because our ideas, our art, our flavor, our community, our impact, there's nothing like it here in this place. This is where we fall more in love with everything that makes us, us. 
This is the place where we love us. Celebrate 30 years of loving us at Essence Festival. Get your tickets at EssenceFestival.com. Hey, guys. Back at the playground again, huh? Yep. You know what this playground could use? A wine country. Heck, yeah. And some waves. So we could go surfing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> ah, love that. A redwood forest would be cool. I'm in. Ah, ski slopes. Let's do it. Um, tenor girl go shopping. Yeah, baby. Wait. Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com.